Welcome, everyone, to the Tory Says Show. It's the 24th of February, 2022. And everyone's talking about war. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. In order for something to be war, there's got to be troops. Well, that's that's the going theme, right? It's the going theme that if there's war, there's got to be troops. You can't just say, oh, you're at war, right? I mean... Vice, if you remember, I was trying to warn you with the Crimea thing. Vice was looking everywhere for conflict and hate and people dying. Even went to the Ukrainian military and said, yo, war. And they couldn't find it, if you remember. Well, here they are saying it again. Troops are doing. Well, first of all, let's, uh, you know, let's get one thing straight. Uh, you're saying troops. However, there has not been any proof of actual troops going into Ukraine. And the Ministry of Defense has stated clearly that this operation, which you cannot truly classify as an invasion because, again, there are no troops on the ground, has been targeting military targets Within Ukraine, so we're talking airfields, we're talking air defense systems, we're talking... I mean, you're not serious, right? I mean, I, I want to be, you can't be serious. This is not an invasion. I want to ask you why this is not an invasion, what we're seeing, uh, what the Russian troops are doing. Well, first of all, let's, uh, you know, let's get one thing straight. Uh, you're saying troops. However, there has not been any proof of actual troops going into Ukraine. And the Ministry of Defense has stated clearly that this operation, which you cannot truly classify as an invasion because, again, there are no troops on the ground, has been targeting military targets within Ukraine. So we're talking airfields, we're talking air defense systems, we're talking... Hathian, you're not serious, right? I mean, I want to be... You can't be serious. This is not an invasion. I want to ask you why this is not an invasion, what we're seeing now in in Ukraine. The definition of the word invasion... What? Do you know it? I'm not playing a game with you, Tatiana. I'm asking you, how on earth can you justify what we're seeing now is not an invasion? You call yourself a reporter. Answer the question. Why is this not an invasion? What's that, what's that, the, the justification there in Moscow? Well, again, an invasion would actually require for Russian troops to go into Ukraine, which they have not. Those are precision strikes that, being, that are being carried out from Russian territory, and they're only targeting military targets. Uh, as for justification of the operation, I believe that the president has actually been very clear so far. Uh, he recognized the independence of the two republics on Monday. And what you're showing now, those, uh, unfortunately, the pictures that cannot be verified that those are troops going into Ukraine. Uh, hey, there is no verification. 
Uh, Cassiana, I'm, I'm sorry. So he cut her off, right? She wasn't sticking to the script, so he cut her off. <laughs> Tatiana was telling the truth. There is no invasion. There are strikes of military targets, or I would say implosions, kind of like the ones that we saw Donkey Kongs, where they actually obliterate the place and devour it. You know, it's not your typical, you know, where it goes... <laughs> It's, it sucks in. But anyway, he didn't like it. He was upset. Now, oh, everyone's up in arms. Oh my gosh, it's war. And I thought, hey, I've been talking about Russia, Turkey, Ukraine for like forever in a day. So I'm going to show you how this is really going. How's that? Let's see. Mm. Let's first start with the geopolitics of the region. Why? Well, we talked about the Vosphorus. We talked about the, uh, you know, the Caspian Sea, the Black Sea. I, I've talked about it many times. Syria is another one. You know, I mean, if you didn't know that this was happening, you can't really call yourself a news analyst, news commentary person that understands foreign and domestic policy because this was so in your face. So let's get with it and let's see what the geopolitics first off of the Black Sea are. The Black Sea has been the arena of geopolitical strife. Of the six nations that surround the shores of the sea, Turkey and Russia have played the most distinguished role in the shaping of the periphery. The two spend most of their histories in bitter rivalry, fighting no less than 12 wars. Each conflict was, in one way or another, motivated by the prices in and around the Black Sea. Though names and identities have changed over time, those prizes are still there. The Kremlin's military intervention in Crimea in 2014 and Abkhazia in 2008 suggests that the struggle for supremacy in the Black Sea is alive and well in the 21st century. So what makes the region worth fighting for? To find out, we must explore the geopolitics of the Black Sea. I'm your host Shirvan and welcome to Caspian Report. Special thanks to Wasabi Wallet for sponsoring this episode. They ask me to keep things brief. If you're a Bitcoin user, it's the site of dramatic combat and suffering. It's called the Black Sea because of its inhospitable nature. Strong winds blowing in from Russia whip up waves that are several meters high, making navigation dangerous for small vessels. From a distance, the body of water seems enclosed and even isolated. That observation couldn't be further from the truth. All the coastal nations, even neighboring landlocked nations, rely on open access to the Black Sea for a substantial portion of their imports and exports. So the seemingly enclosed Black Sea in fact connects and integrates the nearby societies with the global community. Trade, therefore, is the most common avenue of the sea. There are at least 30 operating merchant seaports in the Black Sea, but the single most strategic space is the Sea of Marmara, which is an inland sea to the south that lies entirely within the borders of Turkey. By the way of the Bosporus and Dardanelles, the Marmara Sea connects the Black Sea to the Aegean and from there to the Mediterranean. These valuable sites in the Marmara Sea are controlled exclusively by the Turks from their grand city of Istanbul. 
Thus, any alteration of power in the Black Sea domain immediately involves Turkey. There's no way around this. Historically, control of the Turkish Straits resulted in fierce conflicts, most recently during World War I, when the British and their French, Australian and New Zealander allies attempted to occupy the Dardanelles at Gallipoli. That effort failed, and the question of the Turkish Straits was ultimately settled by the Montreux Convention of 1936. The convention established strict mechanisms regarding the passage of naval warships. For instance, while commercial vessels were guaranteed the freedom of navigation, the passage of military ships in number, tonnage and duration of stay is restricted, even more so for navies that are not indigenous to the Black Sea. The treaty also grants Ankara the legal power to limit the passage of commercial and military ships during an armed conflict. However, the understanding of what constitutes an armed conflict is entirely up to the Turks, for they have complete sovereignty over the straits. So, Remember, those straits were given to Turkey even though they were Greece's, right? And so here's where it gets really, really sticky. It's important that we walk through this. So we're talking northern Turkey, uh, north, east of Greece, right? There's straits where people go. It's mainly commercial. Uh, the only people that are allowed to go there are Turkish ships, the Balkan ships, uh, some Ukrainian ships, and um, obviously Russian. Now, if you remember months ago, I did a show on how Turkey and Russia squared off in the Black Sea because of them saying, well, we're just going to drill for oil here. And Russia's like, yeah, you know, you may have gotten the straits from them. You don't have the water. Fuck off. So they were in a big fight, if you remember. Really big fight. So um, the one thing that you have to understand is for ships to exit that way, they have to get into Greek waters. That's where it gets sticky for Turkey because you could get trapped. Now, we also talked about how one of the biggest naval bases Russia has is on in Syria, which is south of Turkey and nestled right around Cyprus. I spent so many days explaining the geopolitics of that area because it is important. The geography of Turkey, uh, you know, is not, it leaves them vulnerable. They've got the Russians by the water of the Black Sea the Caspian Sea, and then the Southern Seas. And then they have the Greeks that <laughs> don't give shit if you're in NATO. There's actually clauses in NATO that says that if Turkey's in trouble, Greece can say no. So, so, here's where it's all coming down to. And so this has all been planned. You guys forget the explosion in uh, Southwest Russia where just this random laboratory blew up and the Russians did it. Then there was another laboratory that the Russians blew up, right? And now they're arresting State Department officials and assets within, within uh, Russia for the past few weeks that have penetrated uh, Russian uh, areas. This is why Russia, you know, why our State Department isn't talking with Russia, because they found their assets that are advocating for riots. So Russia should stick 
to the plan. The one thing about Russia is, is that they're ready to smack down back. They've been put in a corner for a long time. Putin has been telling him exactly what he's going to do. Like, you know, I kind of see things the way he does because I like telling people about the train wreck and then saying, look, don't say I didn't tell you. He told them they didn't believe it. He told them they didn't believe it. He was pushing and he was doing shenanigans while President Trump was uh, in office. And Trump was like, listen, man, don't make me send shit down there. Just it's just just let's keep the peace. Erdogan's a problem. Erdogan's a problem. Well, here's where you're going to see all these people because, you know, while you're focusing on Russia and Ukraine, the real shit's going down in the Middle East, in, in mini Middle East, because we've got a quad that formed Pakistan, India, and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is dry in respects to oil. I already told you that. And so they're going to come up from behind and Iran is going to join, and there goes Turkey from the south along with Russia. But he needs to stay simple because Estonia is uh, Putin's blind spot. So, you know, the Ukraine has actually been working with Russia. This is how you clear debt. This is how the Ukrainians can say, oh, well, you know, we got annexed. Oh, shit, shove your debt. You can't have it. We have our own resources. So this was the idea. You know, the fact that the Quad was formed in the Middle East and having Pakistan, India, Saudi Arabia there, and they actually joined forces with Israel is really weird. So India was a nation that never recognized the Israeli passport. So I'm seeing the Arab nations uh, formulating to the south of Tur- of all this mess, to the south of Turkey. And the thing is, ISI is tight with Hezbollah, right? So it's very concerning that Israel's um, new prime minister cut a deal with them. It's almost as if he wants his country to fail because all of these nations disregard Israel as a nation. So it's really weird. So I want you guys to think of it this way. You know where Russia is on the map and you know where Ukraine is. Now, Russia is also northeast of Turkey. They're north of Turkey. They're south of Turkey. And southwest of Turkey comes in this quad. And they're just silent, really. And then you've got China fucking doing shit. Well, everyone's looking at Taiwan. No one's looking at the shit they're doing, you know, coming in toward the West, right? Because they've got shit at the border in Pakistan and India. That's uh, that's not that's not very good, you know, because here's the thing. Erdogan put all his eggs in a basket. Remember when he was parading around the Mediterranean a couple years ago and he was like, well, the UN acknowledges me as the person that will, you know, uh, support the military for Libya, and I'm just going to drill here, and all of this is mine, and take that. And it's like, man, see, doing shit like that pisses off the only person that can actually be neutral in a war, like Greece. <laughs> and Cyprus is really upset, hence I wanted to revisit what a real, uh, you know, invasion is as in comparison to what, um, you know, they say, you know, Cyprus versus Crimea. And um, 
you know, obviously, uh, Don Bas, as you remember from that video from 2014, they wanted to be with Russia, but they couldn't. So Putin is going to ride in on his motorcycle, right? But what he's doing is he's strategically eliminating certain facilities, certain facilities that Black and Veatch have, uh, you know, when did they go in there? I think they, they started going in there, uh, I want to say like, um, 2010 Black and Veatch, you know, everyone thinks they're only construction. They build up bioweapon facilities too. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that. So Kansas has got to do some homework on that. So, um, Donbass is freaking Russian. You saw the vice reporter that was at Donbass and he was like, how do you guys feel? Oh my gosh. And they were like, fuck the European union, fuck NATO. Right. <laughs> I'm just saying. So anyway, let's continue. Cause you guys have to see, uh, the geopolitics of that sea. Cause it's going to be important. Like you saw, um, on the map here, let me show you this second circle, which is the Southern exit from the black sea enters into Greek waters. Now, here's the funny thing. Turkey and Greece have been fighting for the past two decades, over six miles. Turkey has demanded that they take six more miles of maritime territory, and Greece has denied it, obviously, because of the uh, insane amounts of titanium and uranium that are in the Mediterranean. That was actually discovered from the island of Lesbos. Uh, Just so you know, you know, the Greeks are kind of dumb, when it comes to politics and understanding when they turn into slaves, but they're quite innovative. There's an Island here called Lesbos, uh, that actually has an underwater, uh, fighter jet facility. I kid you not. The fighter jets come out like missiles and then they spread their wings. I kid you not. It's the most incredible thing you've seen. But on top of that, in this region over here in the Peloponnese, Sorry, it's above Patra. So we're going here, right here. Um, President Trump sent a shit ton of weaponry. I have the articles on my website. Uh, feel free to go to torysays.com and just type in Greece or Ukraine and you'll see most of that stuff. So we have just fortified and pulled troops from Germany there about four years ago. And they've been beefed up with uh, night vision, heat seeking and all this other tech they didn't have. Now over here is where, uh, Russia patrols. This is all of Turkey. They patrol here. We've got the quad here. We've got Greece here and we've got Russia, Ukraine, and Turkey here. Now over here is Russia and Georgia. And here we've got access to the Middle East, right? So I just wanted to kind of like fly through that for those of you that are watching. Let's go and New Zealander allies attempted to occupy the Dardanelles at Gallipoli. That effort failed, and the question of the Turkish Straits was ultimately settled by the Montreux Convention of 1936. The convention established strict mechanisms regarding the passage of naval warships. For instance, while commercial vessels were guaranteed the freedom of navigation, the passage of military ships in number, tonnage and duration of stay is restricted, even more so for navies that are not indigenous to the Black Sea. The treaty also grants Ankara the lead. I'm sorry, I, I, I'm watching a lot of these messages because it's repeating that audio. I just wanted to say, for those of you that want to see Black and Beach, listen to what you're going to do. 
you're going to go to this website called usaspending.gov. Type in Black and Beach and look at the multi-million dollars contracts they've gotten and go look for yourself to see what kind of contracts they get. Threats like, I don't know, biological threat reduction shit. So you should use the tools. It's all public because you paid for it with your tax dollars. Legal power to limit the passage of commercial and military ships during an armed conflict. However, the understanding of what constitutes an armed conflict is entirely up to the Turks, for they have complete sovereignty over the Straits. So basically, the Montreux Convention grants Turkey a legal layer of defense in addition to its physical advantages in the Marmara Sea. They decide who comes in and who leaves. To the north sits Russia, the strongest power native to the Black Sea. Though enormous in size, Russia has no year-round warm water port with open access to the world's oceans. There are Russian ports in the Arctic Circle and in the Far East, however those require the operation of expensive icebreakers to keep the waterways navigable during the winter. The only year-round navigable ports Russia has are located in the Black Sea, but those rely on the Turkish choke points for access with the global community. This lack of a dependable warm water port has been a driving impetus in Russian geopolitics for centuries and continues to shape its foreign policy. Elsewhere in Russia, the rivers Don and Kuban connect Russia's socio-economic core with the Black Sea. The Don, for instance, is commercially navigable as far as upstream as the city of Voronezh, making it the busiest trade river in southern Russia. Meanwhile, the Kuban River connects the northwest Caucasus to the Black Sea and thereby strengthens Moscow's hold over its multi-ethnic southern territories. Both rivers flow into the Sea of Azov, which is another inland body of water. Situated between Russia and Ukraine, the Azov Sea is connected to the Black Sea through the Strait of Kerch. This narrow strait is about 3 kilometers wide at its narrowest crossing and it's the site of the newly constructed Russian bridge that connects the Russian mainland to the Crimean Peninsula. Taken together, the Don and Kuban rivers, the Azov Sea and the Kerch Strait represent the soft underbelly of the powerful Russian Federation. And since Russia has no geographic barriers to protect its heartland, control over these assets is that much more important. Holding all these properties in place is Crimea. The small peninsula is Russia's single most strategic asset in the Black Sea. A single fortification by its isthmus can hold back numerically large forces. Sort of like how the Spartans used geography to their advantage in the Battle of Thermopylae. When Russia is in control of Crimea, its soft underbelly by the Sea of Azov is secure. But when a hostile power holds Crimea, Turkey for instance, it can harass and disrupt the movement of the Russian military, possibly even crippling the state defenses. In other words, without Crimea, the Russians would have to devote substantially more resources towards defensive measures. Crimea is of such strategic significance that the indigenous Tatars were ethnically cleansed from the area to make room for ethnic Russians that were loyal to Moscow. It's also why the Kremlin forcefully took the region from Ukraine and then annexed it in gross violation of international law. Wow, they still keep saying that, that they encroached it and took over and did all that, that stuff. It's so weird. 
It is so weird why they keep saying that. I don't understand. But uh, the thing that, that you need to understand is Crimea has given uh, Russia the advantage to have their territory and their defenses. And that was imperative with NATO. And the Tartars, that's why the base is called Tartarus down ta- tar- <laughs> down in Syria. They're still there. So I don't know where they're getting this. It's like the same thing. You guys saw it. No one annexed anything and took forcefully. He, it's just like Guam. You know, I, I hate that. The, oh, I, I don't like that word. Ignorance. Guam. Okay. What business do they have being under the territory of the United States of America? Oh, let me guess. We conquered them. Oh, wait a minute. You mean we annexed them, right? You mean we annexed them, right? So that's exactly it. That they're, you know, cooperating under the wing of the United States of America that, you know, they are part of us, but they're not really. They're independent. Kind of the same way Crimea is to Russia. You know, this is why when people, yeah, the United States never do something like that. And it's like, yeah, you want to start counting uh, U.S. territories so we can start counting on our fingers. Russia, Russia didn't take over. Crimea wanted to stay with Russia. Crimea's biggest customers were the Russians, right? It's like the Hamptons for the Russians, right? And they were all identifying as Russians, just greater Russia. And you know what? Ukraine is to Russia as Cyprus is to Greece. Ukrainians speak a different dialect than those in motherland Russia. Cypriots speak a different kind of Greek than those in Greece. Actually, Cypriot is a completely different language. So, you know, for example, in Greek, you say chair as karekla. And in, you know, Cyprus, you call it tsaera. Completely different. Different influence, heavy Middle Eastern, Roman influence, right? Middle Eastern and Roman. So, I mean, come on. Like, seriously? And when I hear people with ignorance speak and say that, see, like this guy, totally great put together, but when he sits there and says, they took it against the laws, and I'm just like, all right, sorry. I have to point it out, okay? Just have to point it out. It's just so terrible. Other significant assets by the Black Sea include the Dnieper, Dniester, and Danube rivers. The Dnieper is an important navigable waterway that splits Ukraine in two. It's also the site of the Ukrainian capital, and the river marks one of the few geographical obstacles in the otherwise flat terrain of the European plain. The Dniester, meanwhile, forms the boundary between Slavic-speaking nations and those who speak a Latin-based language, for example, Romanians. The river is therefore a natural demarcation line. The Danube is the last major river that discharges into the Black Sea. The river draws its water from the tributaries that flow from the Alps and the Carpathians to the Romanian port of Constanza. It is in Constanza where the Americans have made their base. The NATO airbase near Constanza offers the United States an entrance to the Black Sea without having to rely too much on allied Turkey. That said, Washington's interests in the Black Sea are inept, and the Americans keep their fleets in the Mediterranean for legal and technical reasons. So even though the White House has a foothold in the area, the main contestants for supremacy in the Black Sea are Russia and Turkey. 
The rivalry between Moscow and Ankara dates back to the 16th century when the Russian Empire faced threats on multiple sides. To its west, there was the powerful Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which had gone to war with Russia on several occasions and even briefly occupied Moscow at one point. To the south was the vigorous Crimean Khanate, which at the time controlled the northern shores of the Black Sea and often raided deep into Russian territory. This stalemate took a U-turn in 1667. Russia signed a truce with Poland and gained control over the Ukrainian territories east of the Dnieper River, including the strategic city of Kiev. Two decades later, while the Poles battled the Turks in Vienna, the Russians negotiated for the perpetual concession of Kiev and eastern Ukraine. In exchange, the Russian Tsar joined the war against the Ottoman Empire. Having gained control over new territories in Ukraine, the Russian Empire was now capable of halting the Tatar raids. However, to elevate Russia among the ranks of global powerhouses, the Russians needed greater economic integration with West Europe. And to accomplish this goal, Russia needed a dependable year-round warm water port. Its largest port at the time was situated in Arkhangelsk which was so far up north that its waters stayed frozen much of the year, making it inoperable as a commercial port. By 1703, the grand city of St. Petersburg was established by the Gulf of Finland and quickly gathered much of Russia's maritime traffic. However, the Neva River, which flows into the Bay of St. Petersburg and the bay itself, froze during the winter. Nothing in Russia's geography came even close to a dependable warm water port. So, to acquire one, Moscow had to look south. In the late 18th century, the Ottoman Empire had weakened as much as the Russian Empire had strengthened. In the meantime, the Crimean Tatars declined in size, allowing for the Russians to seize control of the Sea of Azov. Anchoring by the shores of the Black Sea granted Moscow access to the lucrative trade in the wider periphery. However, the Russian ports in the Azov Sea were constantly under pressure by the Ottoman navy, which operated from the Crimean Peninsula. Over the next century, control over the Azov Sea went back and forth between the Ottomans and Russians. Eventually, in the Russo-Turkish War of 1739, Russia was granted the right to construct a lasting port in the Sea of Azov, but it wasn't allowed to sail its naval fleet in the Black Sea. This status quo changed again in 1774, when Russia caught the Ottoman navy by surprise and ousted them from Crimea. The capture of Crimea fundamentally shifted the balance of power. The Ottomans lost their means of influence, and the Treaty of Kuchikainarja allowed the Russian fleets to move freely about in the Black Sea. Over the next centuries, Russia expanded its borders neatly along the shores of the Black Sea, conquering Georgia, Ukraine, Bessarabia, and so on. Yet, for all its attempts to dominate the Black Sea, the straits that linked the sea to the world, the Bosporus and the Dardanelles, remained beyond the reach of the Russians. That stalemate remained in place over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries. By virtue of geography, Turkey had and continues to have the ultimate point of leverage over Russia. Even today, tensions remain high. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union, geopolitical real estate around the Black Sea was once again up for grabs. Ukraine's independence in 1991 deprived Russia much of its shoreline, and the Euromaidan revolution in 2014 
opened the door for further NATO expansion. Having NATO forces so close to the Azov Sea was unacceptable for the Kremlin, so the Russians forcefully annexed the Crimean Peninsula and backed the secessionist groups in eastern Ukraine to increase their leverage over the Kiev government. Russia then proceeded to construct a bridge across the Kerch Strait, but the bridge was deliberately built in a low clearance to restrict the passage of large vessels in the Sea of Azov, all for the sake of security. The stalemate in Ukraine remains risky, especially when considering the leverage of Turkey. If Russia escalates tensions on Ukrainian soil, NATO may decide to counter the Russians from the Black Sea. This would place Turkey in a tough position as NATO would call for passage through the Bosporus. And that is exactly what's happening. But here's the problem. Can Russia really do that? Here's why. This is going to be tight. So you know how President Trump, you know what? Let me, let me play my president. Hold on. Let me play my president. Give me a second. Um, yes. Um, where is it? Here we go. Here's what the president of the United States had said. Please listen to this audio quickly. In the day, President Trump hammered the Europeans. He wanted them to defend themselves against the Russians instead of relying on us. He warned them against relying on Russia for their oil and gas supplies. But they hated Trump, especially Germany's Angela Merkel. She wouldn't spend much more on defense. And when Mr. Trump lost the election, oh, she promptly canceled plans to import gas from America. She threw Germany into Russia's hands. And that's where Germany and much of Europe is now beholden to Russia, which supplies 40% of Europe's nat gas. That's why Germany is not behaving like an ally over Ukraine. They're scared to death to oppose Russia. They're reluctant to impose sanctions, and they won't help Ukraine's defense. Asked to, supply military, uh, asked to send military supplies, you know what they sent? 5,000 helmets. Helmets. Europe is not helping itself either. The climate crowd won't let them. There's as much nat gas under European soil as there is in America. There's a lot of it, but they won't go get it. No fracking over there. And Germany is about to shut down its last two nuclear power plants. Putin's laughing. Oppose me and you will freeze. After meeting virtually with European leaders, President Biden says there is total unity. That's a facade. Putin won't believe it. Truth is, the Greens and weak leadership made energy Russia's best weapon, and Trump saw it coming. Meantime, the uh, former ambassador... Let me ask you, Mr. President, about another democracy that is having a very different kind of drama. You made some comments about the American Republican uh, presumptive nominee, Donald Trump. Um, you called him uh, brilliant, outstanding, talented. Uh, these comments were reported around the world. I was wondering what, uh, what, in, what in him led you to that judgment, and do you still hold that judgment? What? You, you personally are very famous in our country. You're not only famous as a journalist in one of the biggest TV stations, but as an intellectual. 
Why do you always change the meaning of what I said? Because at the moment you speak as a journalist, not as an analyst. Why are you juggling with what I said? I only said that he was a bright person. Isn't he bright? He is. Uh, he's, I did not say anything else about him. But there's one thing that I paid attention to and that I definitely welcome is that Mr. Trump said he's ready to restore full-fledged Russian-American relations. What can there be bad about it? Don't you welcome it? We all welcome it. Just to be clear, Mr. President, I, I, the word brilliant was in the Interfax translation. I realize that other translations might say it's bright, but I use the official in Interfax translation. Yeah, he covered himself. But here's what else uh, Putin had said about President Trump, too. Right? He's brought he should be respected, even if we disagree with his position. He said our political system is terrible because they don't even show respect to him, even though he was elected. In the U.S., an uncalled-for anti-Russian campaign began. He's right. It was a Russia hoax. Someone lost the election to Trump and they put the blame on Russia. It started the anti-Russian hysteria. There's no other way to call it. Any issue, any failure by someone is blamed on Russia. So Putin even said that they should have respected our president. Listen, remember, the whole world pointed the finger at Russia saying they're an enemy. The whole world. And now there's a there's a, an alleged selected resident in that White House right now who can't tie his shoe. Has losers like Blinken and Sullivan running policies. All right. Of course. If I was Putin, I'd be like, bitch, <laughs> now it's my turn. Because for all this time, you were saying that I colluded with him, right? And you had targets, you were going to do sanctions, you talk shit, you smeared my country as if I would collude with President Trump. Hillary would have been a lot easier to deal with because he's already paid her off and so have other nations. So again... You know, this is Putin, you know, can you blame him? He's Russia first, right? He looks at his interests. His interests are, I need to make sure I can secure my exit in water. Because if you're paying attention, Turkey has no money. Their inflation is insane. What used to cost $1 is now $4, right? They don't even have money to buy gas from the Middle East. So they're reliant on the Turk stream because they have good relations with, Bi with, um, with Biden, with Putin. Wait, what's that? Well, I've broken that down before, but I think it's important we revisit 
the agreement that they did in 2016 and then move forward to the other things. See, he wants the water. He wants to be able to travel with the water. And the only person stopping him is Turkey. He's giving Turkey energy and energy's give, and Turkey's giving that energy to Europe. They have Nord Stream 2. Europe's also getting in. He can make them all freeze. They will have no industries. He can turn that shit off if he wants to. But he's not. He's playing the game. And here's why he's got the advantage. Yapılan araştırmalar bu gaz için en karlı ve ekonomik güzergahın Türkiye olduğunu gösteriyor. Ülkemizin doğal gaz ve enerji ticaret merkezi haline gelebilmesi adına yeni ve önemli yatırımların arefesindeyiz. Rusya Federasyonu Cezayir ve Norveç'ten sonra Avrupa'ya dördüncü doğal gaz koridorunu with Russia after Algeria and Norway we're going to build the fourth energy corridor for Europe this was the birth of Turkstream so weird right so weird wait there's more now while you think because they have pipelines that get gas from Iran that that's where they're getting it lately it's actually the other way around. It's Russia giving gas to Turkey, to then Turkey to resell it to Europe. Less than three years after agreeing to build one of the world's longest undersea gas pipelines, the leaders of Turkey and Russia turned this valve in Istanbul to mark the first delivery of gas through the newly completed Turkstream pipeline. I would like to repeat once again that the supply of Russian gas through the Turk stream surely will be very important not only for the economy of Turkey but the whole Black Sea region and will positively influence the development of many European countries. It will deliver much of Turkey's natural gas imports which provide a third of the country's electricity. The 910 kilometer pipeline stretches across the Black Sea from the Russian town of Anapa to Kıyıköy in Turkey. On January the 1st, it began delivering gas to Turkey and onwards to Bulgaria. It can carry up to 15. So let's stop there for a second. I want to show you the map. So as you know, in order for, for Russia to exit, they need to come through these straits. If they turn off the gas, it's game over for Turkey. They get no money from resale and they have no energy. Let's just, it's not just Europe. I want you to pay attention. Yeah, it can carry up to 15.75 billion cubic meters of natural gas, enough to power nearly 8 million homes. The second leg of this pipeline is expected to be completed this year. It will extend through Bulgaria to Serbia, Hungary and Slovakia. Russia currently supplies gas to these countries by the Trans-Balkan pipeline, which passes through Ukraine. As Moscow cuts out Kiev, its reliance on Ankara is rising. The two countries are promoting the use of domestic currencies for international transactions. They're hoping this and other measures will drive up their trade volume from around $26 billion in 2018 to $100 billion 
over the next few years. And they have done that because, again, they were trading in their local currencies. So, again, listen to that carefully. Local currencies. Where is the Turkish lira? It's so far in the gutter that it can't even see daylight right now. Its money is trash. Its money is trash. And it's relying on Russia. Because Ukraine is busted up. And now you've got the quad of the ISI, Pakistan, India, and Saudi Arabia supposedly teaming up with Israel, which is really bizarre. And uh, look over here, they're doing all of this. And we have directors, you know, that, that, that actor, Sean Penn, El Chapo, Haiti, the Haitian president getting taken out. You know, he was involved in, now he's in Ukraine. <laughs> Total coincidence that he's recording a war movie in Ukraine. Come on. Who believes this crap? Who believes this crap? So while you're looking over there, I've been talking about Turkey, 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 Turkey for a long time because that's the source and that is where World War III is. This is why Syria was a big deal. This is why everything. And this is why President Trump was like, bucket. we're over here doing this little oil thing and just minding our business so we could pay attention. Y'all duke it out. We're out. And I've played the same white stripes cover for like forever and a day. Please use discernment when you're looking at things. And, and just so you guys know, it's not just when I do my radio, my cat talks all the time. I know he's like an old kitty and all he does is talk and it's not because he, he's hungry. He literally talks. So um, <laughs> so he's talking, I'm sorry. I sound like such a cat lady. Um, so anyway, the whole point is it's Turkey. That is the target. You take Turkey out, Russia grows, Greece grows, European union collapses. The NWO collapses because there's no NATO. This cooperation is extending way beyond trade. The two countries are jointly a newly cleared 30-kilometer-deep zone along Syria's border with Turkey. Ankara is going ahead with the purchase of Russian S-400 missiles despite staunch opposition from Washington. And they're trying to resolve their foreign policy differences, including the conflicts in Syria and Libya. No one has the right to throw the whole region, especially Iraq, into a new circle of fire just for the sake of their own interests. As a country that can talk to all sides, We'll continue our diplomacy in a multifaceted way. We want our region to burst into blood and tears by mobilizing all the resources we have. In this process, we'll be in constant dialogue and consultation with the Russian Federation and my dear friend Mr. Putin. The Turkstream project was launched in 2017 when bilateral relations were still fraught over Turkey's downing of a Russian jet. Their ties have improved immensely since then. And the completion of this pipeline is building hopes that diplomacy can help bridge their disputes as well. TRT World, Istanbul. Well, for more on this, the chairman of the London Energy Club, Mehmet Ochu, joins us live now from Izmir. Welcome to Money Talks, Mehmet. Now, this is a huge project, isn't it? When it's fully up and running, about 3 billion cubic meters. When it's fully up and running, it's already up and running. But I hear some clues from what Al Jazeera had to say before that. That was 2020. Now we're going back to 2018. Listen to what Al Jazeera had to say about this. 
part of the Turk Stream pipeline that will carry Russian gas across the Black Sea to Turkey has been laid. When it's fully functional, it is expected to carry 31 billion cubic meters of natural gas, half to Turkey and the rest to Europe. The project is the first to use pipes with an outer diameter of 32 inches to be laid at depths of over 2 kilometers. It will cost around $7 billion. Russian President Vladimir Putin and Turkish leader Recep Tayyip Erdogan approved together in Istanbul to make the announcement. The launch of the Turkish stream will definitely allow our countries to substantially expand our cooperation in the gas sphere. It will have great significance for the economic development of Turkey and the whole Black Sea region. It will also become an important factor that will guarantee security of the energy supply to Europe. Turk Stream is part of Moscow's efforts to bypass Ukraine as a gas transit route to Europe. The EU imports around a third of its gas needs from Russia's energy giant Gazprom. This pipeline will go to Europe either through Bulgaria and Serbia or through Greece and Italy and become operational by the end of next year. Putin announced the project in Ankara in December 2014 as a replacement for another pipeline that was to have been built in cooperation with EU countries. The Turk Stream project, which will carry 31.5 billion cubic centimeters of natural gas, will not only be for our country and our people, but will also have lots of advantages for our region and neighbors. The pipeline is seen as a new step in improving Turkish-Russian energy cooperation. The two countries have worked to increase economic ties in recent months. That includes a $20 billion nuclear power plant project along with a $2.5 billion S-400 missile system deal. Their relationship is based on mutual interests. Turkey wants more sources of energy. Russia needs more markets for its gas. Ankara and Moscow were also able to find common ground in other areas, including the war in Syria. Energy and politics are intertwined for Moscow, and Turkey's dependence on energy imports creates a disadvantage when it comes to Russia. That was made clear in 2015 when Russia suspended talks with Turkey on the pipeline after one of its jets was shut down by the Turkish military near the Syria border. So they've been fighting for a while. And if you remember, first reports say that one plane was shot down now. Oh, because Russia's invading Ukraine, apparently, but no invasion. Uh, and it was a Turkish plane. And see, they're already pushing for it. See, Turkey has a geographical challenge. Let's look at that geographical challenge. Because it's quite interesting, I might say. The Republic of Turkey straddles Europe and Asia, forming a land bridge that links the Levant, Iran, and the Caucasus with southeastern Europe. In stark contrast to its predecessor, the Ottoman Empire, modern Turkey is confined largely to the semi-arid mountainous terrain of the Anatolian Peninsula and the capital-rich lands surrounding the Sea of Marmara. This low-lying region contains the large cities of Istanbul and Izmir, and the two choke points linking the Black Sea to the Mediterranean, the Bosporus and the Dardanelles. This area is the core of Turkey's population and economy. Turkey's geographic challenge is expanding the economic stability and development of this core into the eastern region of the country. Anatolia's rugged geography and mountainous terrain make economic and infrastructure development difficult, 
but has historically helped to prevent land invasions from the east and south. Modern Turkey is working to integrate this largely rural, poorer hinterland into the political and economic mainstream in an attempt to link its current Islamist government to its neighbors in the broader Middle East. However, significant challenges remain. Turkey has fought a decades-long Kurdish insurgency in its southeastern regions, where the Taurus Mountains and the eastern Anatolian Plateau give sanctuary to Kurdish separatist militants. Turkey's position at the crossroads between east and west provides the country with several geopolitical possibilities. The country is working to serve as a transit state linking the exports of its energy-rich eastern neighbors to consumer markets in Europe. Its location also invites a series of constraints. As reflected by Turkey's position surrounded by Europe's economic decline, Iranian ambitions in Syria and Iraq, and Russian interests in the Caucasus. I hope that helped you. Now, here's the thing. The Black Sea region is very, very important to many people. Secretary of Defense Austin in 2021 had a big discussion about that. And I want you guys to take a listen to what he said. Welcome to CSIS Online. The way we bring you events is changing but we'll still present live analysis and award-winning digital media from our Dracopolis Ideas Lab, all on your time. And the last SecDef visit to Ukraine was Secretary Mattis in 2017. Uh, so given the, the focus of this region and the busyness, uh, it, those visits were very welcome. It was really important as well, I believe, to recognize the contributions of those particular countries in Afghanistan, um, showing that that partners are as valuable as, as many of our allies. So the Black Sea is a tough region. You're going to talk us through it. You've got a lot of common and competing interests where Russia, Europe, the Balkans, the Caucasus, the Middle East all come together. And you have a mix of NATO allies, NATO partners, competitors, adversaries. So getting this right is, is really tricky. But I know and I have confidence that DOD and ISA in particular are thinking about this on a daily basis. And you're thinking about it comprehensively because of the way you're organized. So again, we're really excited you're here today, Laura, and I'm going to turn it over to you for opening remarks um, to our audience. If you have a question, there's a form on the web page where you registered for the event. You can just type that in there and, and then I'll ask those when we move to the Q&A session. But for now, over to you, Laura, and thanks again for making the time. Thank you so much, Rachel. And it is terrific to be here. And I have to say, even you know, a couple of years ago, if we had had this same forum, I'm not sure there would have been as much interest. So it's very gratifying for me working on these issues to, to see the attention that they're getting, the rightful attention, um, and uh, the degree of interest from the community. So what I thought I would do today is really use the Secretary of Defense, Secretary Austin's trip to the region as a point of departure for a larger discussion. And I thought I'd give you at the outset really kind of a, a back brief, an insider back brief on uh, what the goals were, what the discussions were about, and then we can open it up and, and, and expand into any number of uh, important policy issues. 
So, you know, to start with, um, I would say that this, you know, this trip, you mentioned the historic nature of it, given um, the lack of senior level uh, visits uh, since 2014 in one case and 2017 in the case of Ukraine. Um, but it also was an important visit as we were coming out of COVID. Uh, so the secretary visited, uh, you know, Romania, Georgia, and Ukraine, and he then went to the NATO defense ministerial, and it was the first in-person defense ministerial since COVID. So the overall trip really offered a wonderful opportunity to uh, pay attention to the Black Sea region, but also to recommit to our alliances and to our partnerships. So I would say if I, if I could um, encapsulate the themes of the, the Black Sea portion of the trip in particular, um, I would say, you know, it's kind of three R's. The first R was reassurance. Uh, and here, um, obviously, you have countries that are very concerned about Russia's destabilizing efforts in the region. And we wanted to reassure these countries of the U.S. commitment. And in the case of Ukraine and Georgia in particular, wanted to talk to them about how we do have this continued commitment to security assistance so that we are improving their resilience and their ability to defend themselves. Um, in the case, you know, pull in not just these military tools, um, but, but also things that are more in the cyber and information domain. Another thing that sort of emerged um, in, in, in yesterday's hearing was this idea of resilience. Um, and the idea that, you know, building a Black Sea strategy that is effective is not just about sort of the military security assistance. Um, sorry, right there go my lights because I haven't enough. Uh, the military security assistance, um, but it's also about sort of economic, political, and, and diplomatic actions. How closely are you working with colleagues at State Department and elsewhere in the interagency, USAID and whatnot, to sort of build and look at the Black Sea through that broader lens of resilience? Well, I think, you know, we are pretty much lashed up, uh, joined at the hip on, on most of these Black Sea issues. Uh, I tend to look at it through the security lens first, and then the broader uh, resilience and economic piece uh, second. Thank you. I, I would say that, oh, there you go, now your light's back on. <laughs> um, but, but I would say that uh, the area where there's probably the most sort of uh, bleed over, if you will, is really in this question of cyber resilience. Um, and that is a, a big focus area for, for all of us. Um, it is something that affects, you know, civilian critical infrastructure in all of these countries, well, in our country, in fact. Um, it, it is something that requires the coordination of civilian and military elements um, and, you know, national security coordinating elements. Um, so it's something that in Washington we're working together on, but also we're supporting um, our, our embassies in the field and our you know, partner and ally countries to be able to tackle with that very broad um, whole of government focus on resilience. Yes, that's that's really important. I, a lot of our allies do that very well, and they're they're organized in this way to be able to take advantage of, of whole of government. So it's it's great to talk with them as as we build integrated deterrence. Um, I'm getting a lot of questions from the audience about sort of specific uh, specifics with with the various countries. Um, so maybe I'll just dive into a few of those before popping out again. Um, one is about Ukraine um, and and how it is constrained in its ability to assert sovereignty over its own territorial waters in the Black Sea and, and the Sea of, of, of Azov um, because of the constraints placed by Russia. 
in the assistance that and, and the cooperation with Ukraine, is there anything that the U.S. and allies have done to sort of help build Ukraine's maritime capacity? Yes, there's, this has actually been a huge growth area, um, especially since 2018, uh, when Russia uh, uh, ha- uh, had that attack on uh, the Ukrainian vessels uh, in the Sea of Azov. Um, and, you know, since Russia has been, you know, closing uh, commercial traffic in the Sea of Azov and uh, across the Black Sea. So, so since that point in time, you've seen not just the United States, but also allies increasing their focus. Uh, for the U.S. specifically, uh, we have uh, started our assistance, um, not just with Ukraine, actually, but with all of the uh, Black Sea countries that the secretary visited, plus with Bulgaria on maritime domain awareness capabilities, they have to be able to see the threat environment uh, to be able to address it. So we have been supporting Ukraine in developing those those capabilities, but again, also Romania, Bulgaria, uh, and Georgia. Um, And then, you know, beyond that with with Ukraine specifically, I'll talk to, um, you know, we have been helping to build out their their actual, uh, you know, naval capabilities and here, um, we so far, the U.S. has committed uh, uh, seven island class patrol boats. So we've given them patrol boats in the Black Sea. <laughs> why were we doing that last year? Why was why was Biden doing that last year? They're telling you everything that's happening. They're telling you everything that's going on. It's just that people don't pay attention like they didn't pay attention to what was going on before that. The moves that were being made. The moves that many apparently didn't see. But the show will go on, won't it? Nothing can stop what's coming. It's already unfolding. It's like an avalanche. Let's take a break. Getting crazy, baby, chill. Don't medicate, just meditate. You waking up now, well, baby, you hella late. Educate, look at what's going on, let it resonate, accelerate. Find your inner hunger like you never ate. Agenda is to push the hate, separate and segregate. Don't celebrate quite yet, the storm is coming. Cue for heaven's sake. Violence that they demonstrate, instigate and penetrate. The values of our country and our God is what they desecrate. My fighters ain't no featherweight. Pulling out the seams of the fabric that they fabricate. They feed us lies, manipulate, intimidate through fear and force. Forcing us to sit and wait till we come together, congregate, and then we liberate. Praying that you give me strength to find some love amongst the hate. Marching on these streets of blood till I see the golden gates. Troubadour, troubled souls, one of God's servants. Blades out, cut the grass till we see the serpent. One day, I hope you see the truth. This puppet show stays on because of you fools. We've been dancing with the devil way too long. I know it's fun, but get ready to pay your dues. Oh, God, come back home. This crazy world is fearless. One day they finally see the truth God, we need you I know the truth is hard to swallow, just digest it Suspected something's going on, but chose to just neglect it 
Deflected by some breaking news Oh, we just accepted Expected just to fall in line and follow their perspective Don't question their objective But I got a lot of questions How these kids molested but nobody's been arrested Credit in the testament, these children are protected So I'm fighting all these terrorists, both foreign and domestic Refuse to be directed, blind, not a sheep Only kneel to my God, so I'm dying on my feet uh, Silence when we speak, but there's violence in the street I've been rolling with the punches, I can't take it on the cheek uh, Drink from a glass half full, I'm optimistic People are sadistic, so vicious and malicious Praying for assistance to overcome my position Or I'm gonna start resisting and then I pray for forgiveness This puppet show stays on because of you We've been dancing with the devil way too long I know it's fun but get ready to pay your dues Oh God, come back home This crazy world is filled with and abusers Now be gone. I hope one day they finally see the truth. God, we need you now. We need you now. We need you now. We need you now. One day, one day, one day One day I hope you see the truth This puppet show stays on because of you We've been dancing with the devil way too long I know it's fun but get ready to pay your dues guys welcome back now before we continue on dispelling all this ukraine stuff i wanted to say something for those of you that are christian and have studied your religion and others jesus has told us and the bible does who satan is satan is not someone that speaks nonsense it's someone that speaks common sense he was one of his most beautiful angels never called him an it it was always a he always said lovely things and how much he had his own thoughts and how he was always at his own will and how he operated with free will and this is why he loved him so and still loved him god loved his most strayed child 
He never called him an it. Never. In fact, and this is for those that love researching anything religion. Angels don't look like you with wings, apparently. Because if you read, you'll see that they look terrifying. Almost as if they have eyes everywhere. You know, watching over you like satellites. Right? I want you guys, when I, I, I see conversation and discourse ensue about how Satan, Satan, Satan. I want you to think of it this way. With all the sin and all the things we do, boy, do I catch myself every single day. And I'm like, I don't like this. I don't like this about me. I don't like that. I need to stop this. Oh, I'm so this. But with all of that, what makes you any different from him? I want you to think about it. Because redemption is going to be coming into play, not now, but 2023. Nothing makes you different. He is still his child. And he still prays for his child, regardless. Don't let anyone ever tell you that you will not be forgiven. God can forgive you for every single thing you have done. And it's so laid out in many scriptures. I think in the Bible it said it'll throw it into the deepest part of the sea. And he'll take inequities and cast them to the depths of the ocean. And he promises your sins and inequities will be remembered no more. Isn't that great news? He'll forgive your sin. He'll forget your sin. But what you have to remember, it's what God has chosen to forget. All, every single one of you had sinned. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. We never know just how much love there is and how far that goes. Forgiveness, and we have a forgiving God. The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving inequity and transgression. There's always time for redemption. You remember when Jesus was hung on the cross, and the first thing he said, the, what, what was it? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. He asked for your forgiveness, humbly and honesty, while he was being tortured. They do not know what they are doing. So when you think of Satan and evil, I want you to take a good hard look in the mirror. Because you are no different. He's just more popular than you are. He's just corrupted more people than you. Because misery loves company. Therefore, if your God can forgive him, 
He can definitely forgive you. Do not say, well, I, I don't compare me to Satan. <laughs> don't compare me to him. And my cat's talking. Don't compare me to him. Why? Because you haven't convinced others to corrupt themselves. You probably have. Hey, let's go steal that lipstick. I'm just saying. Stolen a boyfriend, something. I'm just saying. Maybe not to his level. But who are you to judge what sin is worse? Again, remember. Do not judge. Seek your own redemption. And do not put yourself above everything. Because if you can move mountains with a little grain of faith, you can also destroy them. And so for those that are claiming he's never been called horned, he's never been called anything like that. And, you know, fact check me. Fact check me. My gosh, this cat is so needy. I kid you not. He talks all day. I'm not just saying it. But fact check me. Look in the mirror. Think of the worst thing that man can do. Because that would be what you are capable of. That's what he is capable of. His methods are simply to corrupt your soul. I just hope uh, that resonates to whoever needed to hear that today. Now, moving along with our rumors of war... Can we start off with a little bit of a chuckle? The left is now teaming up on Biden. I mean, you know, we let them steal the election so they can own this war. But, you know, when President Trump comes in, the first thing he's going to do is actually go to war. And it's going to be to set boundaries and territories. Remember that. Sanctions clearly have not been enough to deter Vladimir Putin to this point. What is going to stop him? How and when does this end? And do you see him trying to go beyond Ukraine? And a second question I'll just give to you now. This statement that he gave last night, will that the, West, the threat that he gave, the West will face consequences greater than any you have faced in history. Is he threatening a nuclear strike? I have no idea what he's threatening. I know what he has done, number one. Number two, no one expected the sanctions to prevent anything from happening. It has to show this is going to take time and we have to show resolve so he knows what's coming. And so the people of Russia know what he's brought on them. That's what this is all about. This is going to take time. It's not going to occur. He's going to say, oh, my God, these sanctions are coming. I'm going to stand down. He's going to test the resolve of the West to see if we stay together. And we will. We will, and it will impose significant costs on him. Will he go beyond Ukraine, sir? Do you see him going beyond Yes. Ukraine? Right. Two topics, just really quick. First, markets are down and gas prices are up. I know you always stress the difference between Wall Street and Main Street, but everybody seems to be in for some economic pain. How economically painful is it going to get for people in this country? And I do have one more question. First of all, there's no doubt that when a major nuclear power attacks and invades another country, that the world is going to respond and markets can respond all over the world. So there's no doubt about that. Number one. Number two, 
the notion that this is going to last for a long time is highly unlikely as long as we continue to stay resolved in imposing the sanctions we're going to impose on Russia, period. What's your next question? I'm sorry. The next question is, did you underestimate Putin? And would you still describe him the way that you did in the summer as a worthy adversary? At the time, he was, I made it clear as an adversary, and I said he was worthy. I didn't underestimate him. And I've read most of everything he's written. Did you read? The, I shouldn't say, I'm not being a wise guy. The, you, you heard the speech he made, almost an hour's worth of speeches, why he was going into Ukraine. He has much larger ambitions in Ukraine. He wants to, in fact, reestablish the former Soviet Union. That's what this is about. And I think that his, uh, his ambitions uh, are, are completely contrary to the place where the rest of the world has arrived. You're confident that these devastating sanctions are going to be as devastating as Russian missiles and bullets and tanks? Yes, Russian bullets, missiles and tanks in Ukraine. Yes, I am. But all Russia has to do is pull the plug on Turkstream and Nord Stream and then, you know, for 10 days until they get a delivery of energy, there's darkness. Just boom, all over Europe. And it's like just a pop of a switch. Just a pop. And how do you, we'll see. Let, let's just enjoy this for a second. Thank you, President Biden. If sanctions cannot stop President Putin, what penalty can? I didn't say sanctions couldn't stop him. You've been talking about the threat of these sanctions for several weeks now. Yes, but the threat of the sanctions and imposing the sanctions and seeing the effect of the sanctions are two different things. Okay, They're two different things. And we're now going to, he's going to begin to see the effect of the sanctions. And what will that do? How will that change his mindset here, given he's because attacking Because it will so weaken speak. his country that he'll have to make a very, very difficult <laughs> choice as to whether to continue <laughs> to move toward being a second-rate power second or, in rate. fact, respond. You said in recent weeks that big nations cannot bluff when it comes to something like this. You recently said that the idea of personally sanctioning President Putin was on the table. Is that a step that you're prepared to take? And if not, it's not a bluff, it's on the table. Sanctioning President Putin? Yes. Why not sanction him today, sir? Mr. President. Why not sanction him today, sir? Mr. President, if I can, you detailed some severe and swift new sanctions today and said the impact it will have over time. But Given the full-scale invasion, given that you're not pursuing uh, disconnecting Russia from what's called SWIFT, the international banking system, or other sanctions at your disposal, respectfully, sir, what more are you waiting for? Specifically, with the sanctions we've imposed exceed SWIFT. The sanctions we imposed exceed anything really? that's ever been done. Really? The sanctions we imposed have generated two-thirds of the world joining us. They are profound sanctions. Let's have a conversation in another month or so to see if they're working. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe to our channel. <laughs> you didn't take him out of the monetary trade system because he can't crash his economy. He crashes the economy. He turns off the fucking switch. He's like, yo, Turkey, I can't float you energy anymore. Oh, shit. Then everybody freezes in the Balkans. Oh, Germany, I'm sorry. You need to pay up front. Oh, shit. I don't take SWIFT.
I guess I got to turn you off too. See, he's in a catch 22 and they can't move fast enough to be able to provide energy reserves to the area because we don't have energy production. Right. So he's in a box like nobody's business. And, uh, and you know, Oh, he's, they're, they're trying sanctions, right? That's what he said. You know, we're, we're doing sanctions. Uh, we're definitely doing sanctions. Well, here's how he exchanged words with his own chief spy chief. Okay. With his own spy chief. He was like, don't dilly dally. Just fucking speak. Listen to this. Таким образом, согласился бы с предложением Николая Платоновича о том, что нашим, так сказать, западным Партнерам можно дать последний шанс э, с тем, чтобы э, предложить им в кратчайшие сроки заставить Киев пойти на мир и выполнить Минские соглашения. В противном случае мы э, должны принять то решение, о котором сегодня говорится. Значит, в противном случае вы предлагаете начать переговорный процесс? Э, Нет, я... Э, или, при, или, или признавать суверенитет. Э, а я... я говорите, говорите, говорите прямо. Я поддержу предложение о э, признании... При, поддержу или поддерживаю? Говорите прямо, Сергей. Поддерживаю предложение... Так и скажите, так, да, так или говорю, нет. Да? Поддерживаю предложение о вхождении... Донецкой и Луганской народных республик в состав Российской Федерации. Да, мы об этом мы об этом не говорим, мы этого не обсуждаем. Мы говорим мы говорим о признании их независимости или нет? Да. Я поддерживаю предложение о признании независимости. Хорошо, пожалуйста, садитесь. Спасибо. Dang, he just spanked his spy chief in public. So for those of you that don't speak Russian and don't have subtitles, the spy chief says, uh, I would like to agree with Nikolai Platonovich um, with the suggestion that we give our Western partners one last chance. And Putin's tapping his fingers on the table impatiently, presenting them with the choice in the shortest time to force Kiev to choose peace and implement the Minsk agreement, which is no NATO. In the worst case, we have to make a decision. We are discussing today. What does that mean in the worst case? Are you suggesting we start negotiations? Um, no, um, 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 or recognize sovereignty, says Putin. Uh, I, I, I will, I will. Uh, speak, speak, speak plainly. I will support the suggestion of recognition. I would support, or am I supporting? Which one? Speak plainly, Sergey. I'm supporting the proposal. Then say it like that, yes or no. I support the proposal about the entry of the Donbass and Luhansk People's Republic into the Russian Federation. Then Putin says, we're not talking about that. We're not discussing that. We're talking about recognizing their independence or not. Yes or no? He goes, yes. I support the proposal to recognize their independence. Thanks. You could take your seat now. He totally spanked his own spy chief saying, are you playing politics right now? Are you playing politics? Are we dancing with them? We've got them by the balls. They don't get to make decisions. Take your seat. He's probably axed. Sergey is done. He's like so fired. 
<laughs> so fired. I, I you could you could hear Sergey's butt pucker on mute. On mute. On mute. So obviously the immense debt that Ukraine has, they have a choice. Don't sign NATO to get a discount. Because if they sign on to take NATO, they get a discount, right? Oh, you don't owe us 1,000 years of debt. It'll only be 999 years. So they have a choice. They go debt-free and say, we're independent and, you know, Russia, we're, uh, you know, uh, a territory of Russia. Or they have debt. And Don Bosk and Lewison were like, nah, man, we ain't want your debt. We don't need all these people running in here and refugees and shit. We need borders. See, that's the problem. They brought all these refugees to collapse the infrastructure. And the Ukrainians aren't having that. They're like, nah, man, we've seen this movie before in Soviet Russia. We're good. We're done. I'm so done. Right? So that's what happened. <laughs> And now they're upset. But, you know, it's important for us to take a look into a little bit um, of what's actually going on. <sighs> Turkey has apparently challenged Russia by saying that they're sending arms to Ukraine. Wait a minute. So this happened on February 3rd. February 3rd. Take a listen down from planned arms deals with Ukraine, including the possible sale of additional armed drones that's drawn a rebuke from Russia. Turkish officials said that military cooperation between Ankara and Kiev won't be disrupted to please Russia. The remarks set the tone for Erdogan's visit to Ukraine, when he signed sweeping agreements with President Volodymyr Zelensky, including a free trade deal. A NATO power, Turkey has emerged as a key supporter of Ukraine in recent years, selling it dozens of TB2 drones, which Kiev used for the first time last year in its breakaway Donbass region. That's put Erdogan in a tricky position in recent months as Russia's military buildup has increased concerns among NATO members that it could be preparing to invade Ukraine after it annexed Crimea in 2014. The Kremlin denies it has any such plans, but says it sees a rising risk that Ukraine will attack Russian-backed separatists in the country's east. At the same time, Erdogan has managed to maintain close enough ties with Russia's President Vladimir Putin to anger some of Turkey's NATO allies, including the US. Turkey has sought to leverage those relations offering to mediate between Russia and Ukraine to defuse the latest border crisis. Erdogan's decision in 2017 to purchase the S-400 air defense system from Russia resulted in U.S. sanctions targeting Turkey's defense industry, but didn't persuade it to back down. Turkish analyst Asli Aydin Tashbash says, in the case of Ukraine, Turkey is no ordinary NATO member. It has recently been selling armed drones to Kiev, some of which the Ukrainian military has already used in Donbass, to great effect, against pro-Russian targets. Turkey is also a close ally of Russia, and a key trading partner, and Ankara has been careful not to step on Moscow's toes across different conflict zones. Under Erdogan and Putin, Turkey and Russia share much more than meets the eye. The two resurgent powers want to shake up the post-Soviet world order, they each have a disdain for liberal norms, and they both want a greater role on the world stage for their respective countries. 
Turkey and Russia have also developed a unique form of relationship, often dubbed competitive cooperation, whereby they back opposing sides in conflicts in Libya, Syria, and the South Caucasus, but do so in a way that recognizes each other's expanding sphere of influence. This unique relationship between Erdogan and Putin can be hard for Western countries to fully comprehend. In 2014, Turkey criticized the Russian invasion of Crimea but did not join the US-led sanctions against Russia. In 2017, Turkey signed a deal to buy the Russian-made S-400 missile system and, against American objections, received it in 2019, despite the threat of US sanctions. No doubt Ankara will want to stay out of any military conflict with Russia over Ukraine. Despite its growing defense sales to Ukraine, its instinct will be to try to sit on the fence. In all likelihood, Ankara would join with its NATO partners in condemning a Russian invasion, but it would not go with them in imposing sanctions. Erdogan will aim to continue cooperation with Russia in Syria and in the economic sphere, but he would also step up engagement with NATO, with the aim of improving his global standing and reducing international criticism of him for his domestic conduct. This last point is becoming more important for the Turkish leader as a united opposition emerges against him and opinion polls show an anti-Erdogan majority. And that's okay, because here's what happens. They're asking him, Erdogan, to get in. They're asking him to do it. So Ukraine literally asked Turkey to close the Black Sea waterways. It's getting really hot under the collar for Erdogan because he's like, yo, I can't do that shit. Uh, so this happened. <laughs> Звертаюся до турецького народу, до турецької влади допомогти Україні. Закликаємо закрити повітряний простір і е, закрити прохід через е, Босфор і Дарданели для російських військових кораблів. So Ukraine has asked them to shut down the Bosphorus Strait and impose the sanctions on Turkey. And so as they did that, right? A question arose last year that I want you guys to listen to carefully. It is from last year in March, March 5th. So weird what can happen in one year. In February 2020, Turkey announced that it may close the Bosphorus Straits to Russian warships in order to prevent them from continuing to resupply the Syrian regime's military. The possible blocking of the Russian warships would hold the country's large-scale supply of weapons and aerial power to the Syrian regime of President Bashar al-Assad, which has been conducted throughout the Syrian civil war. It was suggested by media that the move would enable the Turkish military and the opposition forces that it supports in Syria to have more time to redeploy and arrange reinforcements in the country's northwest. Russian military expert Sergei Ishchenko commented on the prediction, warning that Turkey could do so to hinder the functioning of Russian military bases in Kmeyma Mantardis on the coast of western Syria. He also predicted that Turkey may even restrict Russian warplanes from flying through its airspace. It is only necessary for the Turks, at least for a while, to block the Black Sea passage for our ships. Then, the regular operation of the so-called Syrian expresses will be disrupted, said Ishchenko, referring to the passage that the Russian ships usually take to provide supplies to Syria and its military. 
Moreover, some Turkish journalists claimed that Turkey is determined to push forward its agenda in Syria and might even block Russian entry to Bosporus Straits as the two countries collide on several fronts. They said the first option of what will happen, if there is no consensus at the table with Russia, is a shift in the implementation of the Montreux contract. According to them, Turkey might prevent the passage of Russian vessels through Bosporus Straits based on one of the articles the Montreux Agreement which gives Ankara the authority to block the passage of warships if it considers itself to be threatened with imminent danger of war. Additionally, Turkish president earlier challenged the right of 200,000-ton oil tankers to use the Bosporus under the freedom of passage. He said, some may not dare say this. But I can. If there is a threat to our European and Asian shores, then we would do whatever is necessary to prevent it. Paul Price gives detailed information in his article titled, The Turkish Straits Question Revisited. The Bosporus and Dardanelles Straits, together with the adjoining Marmara Sea, are known collectively as the Turkish Straits and provide the only access between the Black Sea and the Aegean Sea. More than 40,000 vessels passed through these waters in 2019, transporting almost 650 million tons of cargo and reaffirming the Turkish Straits as one of the most important maritime trade corridors in the world. Additionally, the shores of the Straits, which narrow at some points to as little as 700 meters apart, are home to more than 22 million people, including the historic city of Istanbul. Since 1936, the Montreux Convention regarding the regime of the Straits has allowed for the peaceful flow of commerce through the Turkish Straits. However, recent calls from Turkish and Russian policy circles for revisions to the Montreux Convention should be cause for concern, as these proposals threaten to either spur a naval arms race in the Black Sea region or look to exploit the Straits as a geostrategic choke point. The Montreux Convention sought to address questions regarding the status of the Turkish Straits that, by the time of the Convention's writing, had persisted for well over a century, occasionally culminating in violence or near-violence, as in Britain's effort to wrest control of the Dardanelles in 1922. It also prohibits any country from deploying to the Black Sea more than nine naval vessels displacing a total aggregate of 45,000 tons, it requires that no group of non-literal states deploy to the Black Sea any naval vessel weighing more than 10,000 tons, and it limits the stay of any vessels from non-literal states to just 21 days. Literal states are further obliged under the convention to inform the relevant Turkish authorities of an intended transit of the straits by a military vessel at least eight days prior, and non-literal states are obliged to provide 15 days' notice. Turkey is further empowered to close the straits to all military traffic in wartime or when under threat of aggression, while also denying passage to merchant vessels belonging to countries at war with Turkey. Though the Montreux Convention has constrained the capacity of NATO support to Ukraine in its struggle against Russian aggression, such as by limiting the number of vessels permitted in the Black Sea as part of standing NATO Maritime Group 2, SNMG2, the continued implementation of the agreement is in the national interest of the United States and other non-literal nations. So, here's what happened today, which is really, really weird, right? So what happens is today, you know, so many bombs and everything's like this and live streams are on loops and, oh no, there's an invasion with no troops on the ground. 
then this happens. And it's like, wait, what happened? Attacked off Ukrainian coast. An unmarked aircraft destroyed a Turkish ship in the territorial waters of Odessa. A Turkish ship was attacked in the Black Sea, en route from Odessa to the territorial waters of Romania. As a result of hitting an unknown ammunition, and it is presumably a light aircraft missile, the ship was damaged, one person was injured with minor injuries, but there were no casualties and other victims. The bulk carrier Yasa Jupiter, owned by Yasa Holding, passed through Bosphorus 19-2 on its way from Porto Trombetish to Dneprobugsky. The ship was shot down at about 1400 hours on 24.02.22-znumps-znumps during a military operation in Ukraine. The crew is safe and the ship is on its way to the safe waters of Romania, reports the popular Turkish blogger Yorick Isaac. Turkey announced that they intend to find out who exactly is behind the attack on the sea vessel, threatening with extremely cruel measures for aggression against the Turkish ship. At the moment, it remains unknown who exactly could have fired a rocket at the ship however, it will not be a problem to establish its ownership from the fragments of the wreckage of the rocket. It should be noted that according to the official data of the Ministry of Defense of the Russian Federation, Russian aircraft were not in this area of the Black Sea however, Ukrainian Air Force fighters did not take off at all most of the military air bases of Ukraine were destroyed even before the attack on the ship. So basically today, a Turkish ship in the Black Sea heading to Romania, right, got shot by a missile. And, you know, Russia was like, yo, I didn't have any planes in the area, I'd freaking tell you. <laughs> but you watch it be Russian, of course. They're going to be like, oh, it's a Russian missile. And it's like, everybody and their mother has Russian missiles. So, I mean... Apparently, you know, Amazon Locker down in Florida, right? Didn't have a package that was a Russian missile? I'm just saying. So it's like, it's getting really, really, really confusing for people. They're watching all of these things. They're looking at all of these things happening. And, you know, they're confused. There's a Russian invasion. Oh, my gosh. Look at what MSNBC, oh, they unlisted the video. Stop it. Okay, I got to play this whole video so I can archive it. It's unlisted. Holy crap, they just changed it from public to unlisted. That means they got busted having stupid shit. Oh, no, it's a live feed too. Let me drop the link. Since it's unlisted, you can still get it. I'm going to drop the link in the chat for anyone that wants to download it. That means it's got important information. Let me show you. They just unlisted it. Hold on. Look. You see that? It says unlisted. Unlisted. That means they messed up something and they took it down. So let's take a, a look at what they're saying is happening. In a vainglorious effort to reconstruct an evil empire that killed 30 million of its own people before its own demise. Mm. Now the only question is, how will America and the West respond to this brutish use of power? The attack began early in the morning, about 5 a.m. local time, from neighboring Belarus, Moscow's ally, with explosions in several cities across Ukraine, including the capital, Kiev. Oh, I know why they took it down. Somebody who has... Oh, shit, I'm not on a computer that can do this. Someone try to rip this video. 
as fast as you can. It has evidence of the strategic points of shots. That's why they're banning everyone from mainstream whatever that's talking about the targets because that gives away what's really going on. Air raid sirens rang across Kiev and Ukrainian officials reported that crews or ballistic missiles targeted military control centers. Dozens of Ukrainian soldiers have been killed so far. Officials say mostly from airstrikes and rocket launches. Ukrainian President Zelensky declared martial law, closing schools and placing hospitals on high alert. There was a mass exodus as thousands tried to flee. The invasion began just minutes after Russian President Vladimir Putin said in a public address that he authorized military action because the West had pushed too far in trying to draw the country into NATO. He also warned other countries against any retaliation, saying, quote, the response from Russia will be so severe that no foreign nations have ever experienced it before. All decisions have been made. Willie. President Biden spoke to President Zelensky of Ukraine last night and this morning. President Biden will meet with G7 leaders. He says he will announce new sanctions against Russia this afternoon. The statement from the president reads in part, the prayers of the entire world are with the people of Ukraine tonight as they suffer. an. Un- oh, my gosh, they're not even suffering. Let's move over. Here we go. Here's the good stuff. That's probably why they took it down. Let's get to that. Hold on. Here we go. Damn it, I keep skipping in. Here we go. G7 allies later today to discuss more severe sanctions against Russia. And we're also expecting him to address the American people at some point today. So go to NBC News chief foreign correspondent Richard Engel. Here's a recap on all these developments. Russia overnight launched its long anticipated attack on Ukraine, striking military posts across the country. An unprovoked war in Europe is now underway. The assault began with an angry message from President Vladimir Putin broadcast in the middle of the night. Russia cannot feel safe, develop and exist with a constant threat emanating from the territory of modern Ukraine, he said, describing the government in Kiev as a junta of neo-Nazis determined to build nuclear weapons. As Putin spoke, seemingly on cue, Russian bombs started falling. Crews and ballistic missiles, Ukrainian officials said, along with attack helicopters striking military installations, including air bases near the capital, Kiev. And more military targets in several other Ukrainian cities, including Kharkiv, the biggest city in eastern Ukraine. Russia claimed to have eliminated much of Ukraine's defenses, but the Russian reports appear exaggerated. Several videos showed what Ukrainian officials described as columns of Russian tanks entering Ukrainian territory. A potentially devastating war in Ukraine has just begun. But so far, it appears to be a gradual assault. Putin, who said he does not want to occupy the country, may be trying to take Ukraine without having to fight hard for it, appealing to the military not to resist. But there are no signs Ukrainians are raising the white flag. President Zelensky, in a pre-dawn appeal, told Ukrainians to stay strong and calm as he announced the start of martial law. While some Ukrainians in Kiev were heading out of the capital, many are determined to stay and resist. In Mariupol, 
people this morning were stocking up on cash with long lines at the ATMs. How are you feeling? I'm nervous and I'm trying to keep my children calm, said Yulia. Putin says he's doing Ukrainians a favor by trying to get rid of their Nazi fascist government. What do you what do you think about that? We don't need his protection, she said and dismissed Putin's claims as lies. Supermarkets were flooded to 45-minute waits for checkout. This is our Ukraine. I'm staying. I'm calm. I'm even smiling, said Ivan. Ukraine has mobilized its forces and begun to defend its cities. The government is calling for urgent blood donations to treat the growing but still unclear number of casualties. Richard Engel, thank you so much. We're staying on top of the breaking situation in Ukraine. Here's a recap. Russia has launched attacks on multiple cities. Let's catch you up on the timeline of events that have transpired so far. Yeah, about 10 o'clock last night, U.S. time, Russian President Vladimir Putin delivered this TV address and said that Russia would be conducting military operations in Ukraine. Then just about 15 minutes later, NBC News teams heard explosions in the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv, and you can see some of the aftermath of those explosions there on your screen. At 10.25 p.m., President Biden released a statement strongly condemning the Russian attack, saying in part, Russia alone is responsible for the death and destruction this attack will bring. The United States and its allies and partners will respond in a united and decisive way. And a little after six o'clock this morning, an advisor to Ukrainian President Zelensky said at least 40 Ukrainian soldiers had been killed in the attack so far. NBC News correspondent Cal Perry joins us now from Western Ukraine. Cal, good to see you again. So tell us, what's the situation like on the ground right now where you are in the west of the country, considered this safe haven area? Is it still that way? And what is it like? What's the mood? It's still, I think, a safe haven for now, certainly. There was so much suspicion leading up to the events of this morning here in Ukraine about the American intelligence reports that there would be a wide-scale invasion. So many people uh, just did not believe it. And the government for so long was downplaying uh, the potential for a wide-scale attack. That People in the background, though, walking around like nothing's going on. You know, they're just like, whatever. Let's go to the more believable dude. Days ago, again, these are these reports that we're, we're citing here. How does Russia see this military operation unfolding? What is the end goal here? We've heard from many of our analysis. I mean, occupation of Ukraine would be costly. We know Ukrainians are saying they're going to fight back. I mean, what is ultimately the end goal? Thank you, Savannah. Well, the thing is, Russia says openly it is not occupying Ukraine. We've, we've heard all kinds of claims uh, today, including uh, uh, that Russia is, is basically there to uh, denazify Ukraine, as they're explaining on Russian state television, and basically uh, liberate the Ukrainian people so that they can choose uh, their own free leadership. It's really kind of a very cynical and twisted narrative, and, 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 and we're just... They're not explaining to the Russian people what's actually going to be happening here, what the actual cost is going to be. This shouldn't really come as too much of a surprise, though, Savannah, because it was only about a a week ago that I think most Russians started to understand that there really was a massive military buildup on on their border with Ukraine. They never were really kind of clued in on that, looped in on what their military was doing. And so they're basically now the mood in Moscow overall generally is is one of shock so what they're trying what the kremlin i think is trying to do now domestically 
is is really control the narrative with a, with, with a very clear line that this is not a war. It's a it's a special operation uh, with very kind of surgical strikes on the Ukrainian military with the goal, I think, I think Russia is hoping that the Ukrainian military and government will just collapse and then everything from there will be easy. That's not how wars go. The United States knows this well. And so I, I just think that the Russian people and the Russian government might have seriously underestimated what they're getting into here. But of course, we don't know what's going on on the ground. Uh, uh, this could really go either way. But the calculus at the moment seems to be they can keep this clean or at least clean enough to, to, to sell it to the public as a clean operation as far as these things can go. Uh, and it just that's where we're at right now. <laughs> Matt Bradley, overnight and this morning, we've been seeing pictures of Ukrainians fleeing the capital, Kiev, and eastern parts of the country. President Zelensky has said weapons will be offered to civilians who want them. Ukraine has been saying they're asking citizens to take up arms. What's the situation like among the people where you are? Is there a feeling that people are going to stay? They're going to fight? We might see more guerrilla warfare? Or are there people who want to evacuate or are evacuating? And if so, where do they go? Yeah, I mean, in this situation, unlike Kiev, and I'm not quite sure why, it's kind of hard to explain, we're not seeing this rush to evacuate. There isn't this exodus that's clotting the highways. I don't really know why. I think the, the main difference between here and Kiev is that Kiev, they really weren't expecting an attack. And here they very well might have been. This is Eastern Ukraine. This is a, this has been a war zone for the past eight years. People here are a bit more resigned to the realities of war. And also this is a Russian speaking city. So this is the largest Russian speaking city in Ukraine. And it's one where people probably assume that Vladimir Putin might think that they're on Moscow's side and wouldn't want to hurt civilians. That very well might be true. Vladimir Putin, in his speech, the, all of his speeches have been steeped in this notion of identity and statehood and language and history. And people here, uh, their identity fits into Vladimir Putin's notion of a Ukrainian-Russian affinity, a Ukrainian-Russian overlap. That's who they are. But at the same time, back in 2014, this city posted a really strenuous resistance to Vladimir Putin and the Russians back when they last invaded so whether or not they're able to continue to do that, I think we're going to see that because the, the citizens that I've been speaking to here are ready to become citizen soldiers. They are ready to pick up arms. Of course, it's one thing to say that and another thing to do that. So it'll be the next couple of days, weeks. So civilian defense, right? The same shit that the Sunrise Movement is pushing here, giving them handouts. Here's how you take up arms as citizens. They're training them. Hold on. Let's, uh, let's go to the next good stuff right here. Let's see. It doesn't always have to be because oil prices are up. Sometimes these concerns, the, the gas stations just raise prices a little bit anyway because they're worried about what they're going to be paying down the line. So uh, big picture, don't know at this stage exactly where gas prices can go, but I can pretty much assure you it doesn't look like they're going to get any cheaper anytime soon. And what about interest rates? The Fed was expected to yeah. raise interest rates next month. We know how might this affect their plans with that? So it doesn't look like they won't raise interest rates. Just to put in perspective for people, when, when the Fed sees concerns, right, big risks to either our economy or the global economy, they don't want to make moves 
raising interest rates that could put us into a recession. Mm -hmm. It does not appear that we are at that stage right now. So what does that mean? Yes, the Fed is probably still going to raise interest rates in a couple of weeks. This just may put a little more pressure on them not to raise them so high. So maybe a quarter point instead of half a point, but but still expected interest rate hike uh, in mid-March. All right, Allison Morris for us today. Allison, we will see you in a little bit. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Let's go back to Ukraine now where NBC's Matt Bradley is on the ground for us there. Matt, hey there, we're coming to you. Can you bring us up to speed on what's happening there right now? What are you seeing on the ground? I know a lot has changed for you in just the past few hours. I got to tell you, uh, Morgan, we're not actually seeing that much changing on the ground right where I am. I guess you could kind of say that I'm in the eye of the storm here. We understand from the mayor of this city that the Russian troops are arrayed around the city uh, on the sort of the beltway of this city. And it sounds as though, for the most part, they're unopposed, that we're also hearing other reports that there's fierce fighting. It's a confusing situation, and we're trying to nail down exactly what's going on. I hope you understand we don't really want to venture out there right now and try to figure out what's going on. But I can tell you that here in the center of Kharkiv, and this is the second largest city, uh, everybody, well, not everybody, but a lot of people, are taking refuge in metro stations like this one. And I went down there, the trains are stopped, they're no longer running, the turnstiles are open, and there are people down there who are seeking refuge. Homeless. This is what the government has told them to do because homeless. we're continuing to hear bombs landing homeless. all around this huge city, the second largest in Ukraine. But guys, I also wanna show you something else. This is like the city hall, this building right here, the central administrative building. Back in 2014, back the last time the Russians invaded Ukraine, uh, pro-Russian demonstrators took control of this building, dozens of them. They climbed up on the top where that Ukrainian flag is, and they put up a Russian flag. Well, the residents of this Russian-speaking city then retook the building. The police arrested all of those protesters and put up, again, a Ukrainian flag, kind of like the one that's still flying there now, eight years later. And, you know, when I talk to people in this, again, Russian-speaking city, majority Russian-speaking they always tell me, and they point to this building as an example, a moment in history that shows their resolve. Yes, they are Russian speakers. Many of them have family in Russia. Many of them were born in Russia or studied in Russia. But they are determined to fight for Ukraine just as they did eight years ago. Guys. All right. NBC's Matt Bradley on the ground for us in Ukraine. Matt, thank you so much. I want to go ahead and bring in NBC News military analyst, retired U.S. Army Colonel Jack Jacobs for his insight. Colonel Jacobs, thanks so much for joining us. What is your reaction to what we've seen so far happening in Ukraine? Well, a lot of us have been looking at it for a long time. Uh, Putin's been getting ready for this for a long time. And he even telegraphed it some years ago. Uh, it's following the pattern that most military analysts uh, agree uh, that he would do it this way. And that is uh, a big buildup along the border, then an incursion on some pretext to save Russian speakers in the eastern provinces, and then wait to see what the West is going to do. Well, we did, I think, exactly what he thought we would, and that is place some moderate strictures on some of his people and on a couple of banks, but will then uh, carry on doing what he's doing bit by bit, uh, expecting that ultimately Ukraine will give in, will get tired and give in. The West will get tired and give in, particularly our allies in Western Europe who depend very heavily on Russian energy, and that eventually we will give in because it's far away, nobody wants to get involved in Ukraine, and it'll dissipate and he'll eventually be able to take it over. 
He's doing exactly following exactly that plan. Uh, he's he hasn't stopped. Uh, he's moved forces in around cities, as you heard. Uh, but he's now waiting to see what the West will do to the extent that we add more strictures, more uh, more controls over financial institutions, mm-hmm. other entities and the people around Putin. Uh, he'll stop and then he'll carry on doing mm-hmm. what he's doing. Colonel, I, wanna, I, what, would, I would like to interrupt you, though, for just just a second here and briefly ask, you know, what about NATO? I mean, what actions do you expect to see in the coming hours, really, and the days ahead from the alliance? Uh, not much. Uh, NATO is is very much concerned about its own borders. It's terribly scared of what Russia is doing because it means a great deal for northeastern Europe, uh, Poland, and particularly the Baltic states, uh, all of all of whom with, with with whom we're allied, and they're all very much concerned. But remember this: there is a, a significant economic link between. Uh, our NATO allies on the one hand and Russia on the other. And Germany, Italy and other countries have been imploring us not to do what would really be lowering the boom on Putin and Russia. And that is to withdraw Mm -hmm. them from the swift payment system. They've told us they told us last week and they told us again this week. My guess is when uh, Putin speaks to the G7, they're going to tell him again they don't want him to do that. And there are a couple of reasons for that. It'll have a deleterious effect on our ally. They perceive it'll have a deleterious effect on their uh, their economies. Okay. And uh, there People today were trying to get out, get some fresh air, walk with their kids. Um, but there is a deep concern about relatives who, who are in another part of the country. We walk right across the street. We grab coffee. Uh, the woman who served us coffee is worried about her parents in Kiev and trying to convince them to leave. But nobody wants to leave the place that they live. And they certainly don't want to do it unless they have to. Right. And there's a fear of what will happen when I return. Nobody knows whether or not Russia is going to occupy parts of this country. It's just so unpredictable that there's a real resistance um, amongst people to move until they have to. Yeah. Cal, thank you uh, so much for reporting uh, on the realities on the ground there in Ukraine. We really appreciate it. All right. Let's turn now to Veronica Melkozarova, executive editor of the New Voice of Ukraine. Veronica, uh, you are based in the capital city, Kiev. You posted on Twitter that you hear babies crying in the apartment above you. Uh, just describe for us what else are you seeing? Uh, what else are you hearing there? Moods uh, in Kiev are really terrifying right now. People think that anything might happen because Russians, uh, they seized the Chernobyl nuclear power plant and they took the workers hostage. So they're getting close. (laughs) There's fighting, heavy fighting in Hostomo. Um, But also uh, Ukrainians, they are ready to fight. Uh, We have these territorial defense forces, this newly created uh, task force, which uh, offers every Ukrainian to join the resistance against Russia. And uh, Ukrainians, including famous Ukrainian singers, uh, are posting pictures of standing in lines to uh, sign a contract with the territorial defense forces. Women and men, they are all there. Many of uh, Ukrainians are now um, locating themselves in shelters. Uh, 
I think that uh, those people who live next to... Did you guys hear that? They have performers, Ukrainian performers, signing up for like the civilian defense shit. Are you kidding me? These people are aching for... She found some chick on Twitter talking about babies crying in her building. Like, this is so dumb. This is... They're so desperate to show something that they'll just put anything. Uh, Ukrainian military infrastructure are in great danger because Russians are specifically targeting those uh, mm -hmm. villages uh, which have uh, uh, like military bases, uh, military airports. As I mentioned, heavy fighting right now goes on in Hostomo. We are waiting. Uh, we are prepared for the worst, but we really don't want people to uh, think that high prices on fuel and energy is comparable to what we experience now. Veronica, you tweeted today, please don't leave us alone. Russian Armada is attacking on all fronts. I tried not to cry, but the pressure is so hard I failed. Could you describe for us what it's like to be reporting and living in a place that has now become a war zone? Uh, so for us, it has been a war zone to, like in the last eight years or yeah, eight years. Uh, however, the war has never come that close to mm -hmm. Kiev. So I, I thought I would be more prepared for this. However, the whole day I have this feeling in my guts when like, you know, this actual fear. I didn't know that it is physically possible, but it is. Uh, the pressure is so high that uh, I, I keep getting messages from my foreign friends who think that uh, they can offer some help to evacuate uh, somewhere. Uh, but I don't want to leave Kiev. It's my country. I want to fight uh, for it, as well as many other Ukrainians. I don't want to become another refugee where like, people are going to treat me as, you know, this unwanted person who left uh, the country. This is like... A very bad situation for me. However, I'm really scared, as many other journalists who have been criticizing Putin so vocally, uh, and including the Western media, that uh, when Russians seize, if Russians seize our cities and towns, they're gonna yeah. uh, launch a repression against people like me. So I'm kind of scared. Is that affecting? Not, mm -hmm. Keep going. But I'm not panicking. That's all. <laughs> Good. Good. You, you seem incredibly calm for someone who is going through all that you are. How has that changed uh, how you do your job day to day? Are, are you afraid to keep reporting? Are you afraid to keep communicating that, that you are putting a target on yourself for the Russians? Uh, I already put uh, targets on myself for the Russians. I uh, like had an interview with Israeli TV channel <laughs> and I told the uh, Russians specifically in Israel that they're president is an international terrorist so uh, it's already on me this target uh, but I have to do my job because it's I don't know it's you might understand that when you're a journalist uh, there's some kind of a desire to keep reporting to keep uh, providing information to the whole world because Russia's propaganda is so powerful they have so much money and uh, Ukrainians only can like fight with facts and the facts are more boring this than this legends about the nazi regime in kiev for which seized and you and also the legends that ukrainians gonna uh, celebrate russians as liberators 
they so, are. Yeah, it affects. I haven't had enough sleep for like at least a week. I was going to say, I can't imagine you're sleeping very much, but man, are you calm and are you brave? Uh, I just want to ask, what kind of communication are you getting from the Ukrainian government? As you're trying to do your job, is it difficult to get accurate information right now? Uh, they have been really responsive. Uh, uh, they are not like uh, like they, w they used to be when you had to wait for a comment, for example, for a day, for a whole day. Uh, right now, they're very communicative. They are posting updates uh, in Ukrainian and sometimes in uh, very bad English, but we're trying to make it better. Uh, they're posting uh, updates from the war front. They're calling uh, don us not to believe and not to spread Russian propaganda because Russia's propaganda has, like, it has been really strong during the days. They like, for example, they're reporting that uh, Ukrainians uh, left Mariupol, uh, but our interior ministry says it's not true. So it's yeah. has been like constant fight against fake news spread by Russian propaganda. But we also don't know how exactly how many casualties. Oh, people didn't leave there or anything and they're not pro-Russia. Our government told us it's not true, just like they tell us Joe Biden is a competent fucking president. How Kamala Harris is amazing. We have uh, because uh, uh, our force, our armed forces, they are promising uh, to release the numbers like uh, when heavy fighting stops. And this makes us uh, worried because uh, it seems that they're not giving all the information. Veronica, you have my uh, undying respect and admiration uh, for the work that you're doing. It is one thing to be a journalist in a studio uh, in safety in New York. It is another thing to be uh, doing what you are doing there in Ukraine. Please stay safe. Uh, keep up the good work. And thank you so much for taking the time to share what you're going through with us. Thank you. Good night. Yeah. We have night here. I know. Have a good It reminds me of those memes where someone comes out and says, my pronouns are they and people go so brave. This is exactly what this reminds me of. This is so dumb. So dumb. Okay, here we go. Listen to this clown. Including his troop presence in Belarus and the Black Sea, I've authorized deployment of ground and air forces already stationed in Europe to NATO's eastern flank allies, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and Romania. Our allies have also been stepping up, adding the other allies, the rest of NATO, adding their own forces and capabilities to ensure collective defense. And today, within hours of Russia's unleashing its assault, NATO came together and authorized and activated an activation of response plans. This will enable NATO's high readiness forces to deploy and when and where they're needed to protect our NATO allies on the eastern boundaries of Europe. And now I'm authorizing additional U.S. force capabilities to deploy to Germany as part of NATO's response, including some of the U.S.-based forces that the Department of Defense placed on standby weeks ago. I've also spoken with Defense Secretary Austin and Chairman of Joint Chiefs General Milley wow. about preparations for additional moves should they become necessary to protect our NATO allies and support the greatest military alliance in the history of the world, mm -hmm. NATO. Mm -hmm.
Joining me now, Senate Intelligence Committee Chair Mark Warner of Virginia. Senator, thank oh you for being with us. I know gosh. you are incredibly busy Warner? today. I, I want He should be really busy. Remember, he was in the middle of all those Christopher Steele, Russia dossier with those text messages from Adam Waldman getting warnings from the lawyers saying, Mark, if Assange comes, he'll destroy Obama and the Democrats and everything. Remember that? That's who's talking to you now. I ask you about the report that President Biden has considered launching a preemptive cyber attack on Russia. You have tweeted, I strongly support POTUS's decision to impose severe sanctions on Russia. Putin bears the blame for this unprovoked invasion and his actions must be met with appropriate consequences. What do additional appropriate consequences look like to you? And are you concerned at all that a preemptive attack, a cyber attack that is from the U.S., could potentially spark an equally devastating. Yeah, it will. And you know what? It's a really good thing <clears throat> that when our president went to Florida, we had a lot of um, internet IPs and stuff migrate that way too. You know, that way at least one portion of that stuff is secure and good to go. An attack on the U.S. from Russia. Well, Allison, I think the president has done a couple things well. He is rebuilt the NATO alliance uh, a year ago it was in shambles. Even four months ago, we wouldn't have had all of these nations working in tandem with us. So when you talk about sanctions, for example, economic sanctions, we trade about $28 billion a year with Russia. Europe trades about $300 billion. So having Europeans with us both increases the pain on Russia and also, frankly, increases is harder for Europe to get to. We've put sanctions in place on Nord Stream 2 in conjunction with the, with the Germans. We have hit the Russian banks. Uh, we can do more. I think the notion of throwing them out of the banking system, which so-called SWIFT, which is a European entity, is something we should consider and move on. It's a lot easier to do in concert with our Europeans. And uh, frankly, personal sanctions on Putin should stay on the table. When it comes to cyber, there is a reason why for the last 15 years, the American policy has been, you know, if somebody attacks us in cyber, we can choose which domain we want to attack back. Because as you said, Allison, once you unleash a cyber weapon, um, it knows no boundaries. You put it into a network, uh, it, it doesn't respect geographic boundaries. We saw that a few years ago when the Russians attacked Ukraine, something called not an attack. It ended up costing billions of dollars in the West, it frankly cost uh, money in Russia. So launching a major cyber attack, preemptive, um, you know, I, we have to be, we have to tread very carefully mm -hmm. here. What, what I'm very concerned about, on the other hand, is if Russia launches a major cyber attack against Ukraine, for example, in the next 24 hours, they, so far their cyber attacks have been relatively minor. If they suddenly say, we're gonna turn off all the lights, turn off all the power, turn off all the water, Chances are that might seep into Poland because these networks, again, don't have geographic boundaries. And you get into eastern Poland, you've got American troops there. You've got Polish hospitals. You could end up creating what could, at least to the Poles, appear to be what's called an Article 5 violation where Poland felt it's under attack and all NATO nations have to come to each other's aid. And I'll confirm here at NBC News whether those are Russian tanks or Ukrainian. And then in Washington, President Biden says he's sending another 7,000 troops forward to Germany, and he's laying out more economic punishments against Russian banks and some of its wealthiest elites. And listen, experts say these penalties are tough, but the president still has some tougher cards to play, with questions now about whether he's got to play them sooner. 
So big picture. This is where we know that Russia has attacked. These red circles here that you're looking at on the map, those are confirmed attacks from Russia. They're near big cities. You can see it, like Kyiv here, like Kharkiv. We're going to take you live to Kyiv in just a second. Right now, U.S. sources say Russia has launched more than 160 missiles. You've got these circles. You see them here, here, and here. Those are reports of where Russian forces are building up. And then the parts that are shaded over in the eastern part of this country and down south, those are the areas controlled by Russian-backed separatists. We're starting tonight in the western part of the country in Lviv. That is where we find our Cal Perry. And Cal, this is a city where you've got, I know, journalists that have gone, diplomats have gone to as well. You are there, and I understand you are in your hotel room because of some security security issues. I don't know how to characterize it, Cal. I don't want to get ahead of myself. What do you see? Yeah, so about an hour ago, the city decided to go into what is called blackout conditions. They gave us a couple hours heads up, and they've said for security reasons, they don't want buildings to be putting any lights into the street. So we have shuttered the curtains. We're still able to use our lights. We're not putting any light onto the street, but it's very of an unknown here. People, you know, assume for a long time that this city would remain safe. Um, that map you are showing and the air sirens that I this morning are making it clear that nothing um, is off limits for uh, the Russian army. It is it is clearly uh, concerning when you talk about the diplomatic missions that are based here, that were supposed to be based here. The American diplomatic corps was supposed to be based here. They are now in Poland. They are not going to commute back and, forth, back and forth anymore to Ukraine. It just serves to sort of the point that you're making. We don't know where the goalposts are on this conflict. We don't know how far the Russian army is going to take it. And so the places that Ukrainians assumed uh, would be safe may no longer be safe, Hallie. What are you hearing from the Ukrainian <laughs> government, Cal? Because there have been updates coming in fast and furious. I mentioned the number of people who have been killed so far right now, 57. There's real concern that that number could get even higher, depending on what Russia does next, as these defense officials are telling us, yeah, they're getting closer to basically encircling Kyiv. And I talked to one top member of Congress who said, Putin's not going to stop at just encircling it. He wants it. Look, I, you know, we're going to use the at least, at least 59 people killed, at least 149 people wounded. Those numbers are going to go up. There's just no question about that. I mean, you have fierce fighting in a number of locations around the country. You mentioned Chernobyl. Russian forces quickly overtaking that area. We understand they are still in control. The other thing that went, hap went down today um, that was of huge importance was Russian paratroopers went into an airfield 15 miles outside of Kyiv. And for a short oh period God. of time this afternoon, they held that airfield. More than 130 helicopters landed on that airfield. The Ukrainian government, they shot down three of those helicopters. But it gives you an idea of the fighting that is taking place in all of these different areas of the country. And look, you know, let's be clear to our viewers. All right. So now to finish this, I want you to see what the leftists that are pretending to be moderates are saying about the Russian invasion. Because now they're saying we shouldn't complain about high gas. It's inevitable that Biden's doing all he can. I kid you not. He said this. It's a two-minute clip. Please do not pull all your hair out at once. And at the moment is the most significant security crisis that Europe has seen in several decades. And it has prompted incredible outrage and sanctions on um, Russian forces and Russian elites in the country. So Russia has just recognized two breakaway provinces of Ukraine that they have long been supporting separatist forces in um, for several years now. That situation is the biggest escalation of the conflict that we've seen to date. So the Biden administration said that they were going to be issuing more stringent sanctions on Putin's inner circle, on um, Russian financial institutions, and really ramping up basically the 
the economic pressure on Russia to try and deter them from this conflict. Their goal with these sanctions is to maintain Ukraine as an independent, peaceful country. So we know that these sanctions are going to have a blowback on the United States and its European allies. And President Biden has been very upfront about that. Sanctions are often a two-way street, cutting off Russian gas, making Russian financial institutions harder to operate in the West. That is going to be have very, very severe repercussions for Russia. Um, they are also going to have ripple effects for the United States. You're going to see some of that in American stocks. You're going to see some of that in the global price of oil and gas. Americans are probably going to notice in the short term the impact on some basic brass tax economic needs. The Biden administration is saying that to preserve a democratic, open society such as Ukraine and to make an example of that for around the world, open though, that that society. needs to be a price that free countries like the United States need to be willing to make when, for instance, more Russian troops really do start rolling into um, the rest of these provinces and start engaging with the Ukrainian government. That's when you're going to see a complete shutdown of Western institutions from working with Russian institutions. That's going to be a situation that's going to be almost a bifurcation of the global economy again in a, in a Cold War-like way. It's just been a principle for international politics since the end of the World War that you just don't invade other countries. We've seen over the past um, several decades that when countries do that, it does hurt economies all around the world. The United States is trying to stop that in the situation, and that is going to have economic ramifications. Yeah. Hey, so now, for watching. if you like this video, this check out these there other... So now they're telling us that we should bear the burden. Bear the burden. You know, if President Trump was in office, well, this whole thing would have executed differently. But, you know, it's not like it wasn't expected, but it was mitigated. God bless. Our movement is about replacing a failed and corrupt political establishment with a new government controlled by you, the American people. The Washington establishment and the financial and media corporations that fund it exist for only one reason, to protect and enrich itself. The establishment has trillions of dollars at stake in this election. For those who control the levers of power in Washington and for the global special interest, they partner with these people that don't have your good in mind. Our campaign represents a true existential threat like they haven't seen before. This is not simply another four-year election. This is a crossroads in the history of our civilization that will determine whether or not we, the people, reclaim control over our government. The political establishment that is trying to stop us is the same group responsible for our disastrous trade deals, massive illegal immigration, and economic and foreign policies that have bled our country dry. The political establishment has brought about the destruction of our factories and our jobs as they flee to Mexico, China, and other countries all around the world. It's a global power structure that is responsible for the economic decisions that have robbed our working class, stripped our country of its wealth, and put that money into the pockets of a handful of large corporations and political entities. This is a struggle for the survival of our nation. And this will be our last chance to save it. This election will determine whether we're a free nation or whether we have only the illusion of democracy, but are in fact controlled by a small handful of global special interests rigging the system, and our system is rigged. This is reality. 
You know it, they know it, I know it, and pretty much the whole world knows it. The Clinton machine is at the center of this power structure. We've seen this firsthand in the WikiLeaks documents in which Hillary Clinton meets in secret with international banks to plot the destruction of U.S. sovereignty in order to enrich these global financial powers, her special interest friends, and her donors. Honestly, she should be locked up. The most powerful weapon deployed by the Clintons is the corporate media, the press. Let's be clear on one thing. The corporate media in our country is no longer involved in journalism. They're a political, special interest, no different than any lobbyist or other financial entity with a total political agenda. And the agenda is not for you, it's for themselves. Anyone who challenges their control is deemed a sexist, a racist, a xenophobe. They will lie, 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 and then again, they will do worse than that. They will do whatever is necessary. The Clintons are criminals, remember that. This is well documented, and the establishment that protects them has engaged in a massive cover-up of widespread criminal activity at the State Department and the Clinton Foundation in order to keep the Clintons in power. They knew they would throw every lie they could at me and my family and my loved ones. They knew they would stop at nothing to try to stop me. Nevertheless, I take all of these slings and arrows gladly for you. I take them for our movement so that we can have our country back. I knew this day would arrive. It's only a question of when. And I knew the American people would rise above it and vote for the future they deserve. The only thing that can stop this corrupt machine is you. The only force strong enough to save our country is us. The only people brave enough to vote out this corrupt establishment is you, the American people. Our great civilization has come upon a moment of reckoning. I didn't need to do this, guys, believe me. I built a great company and I had a wonderful life. I could have enjoyed the fruits and benefits of years of successful business deals and businesses for myself and my family instead of going through this absolute horror show of lies, deceptions, malicious attacks. Who would have thought? I'm doing it because this country has given me so much and I feel so strongly that it's my turn to give back to the country that I love. I'm doing this for the people and for the movement and we will take back this country for you and we will make America great again. And we will do that together this year. Every single one of us because the only way you take back this country, the only weapon they can't control is you. See you tomorrow. Sweet dreams are made of this. Who am I to disagree? I travel the world and the seven seas. Everybody is looking for something. Some of them want to use you. 
Some of them want to get used by 